was jazz worse than Marilyn Manson? And I'm not just talking about when you're stuck in an elevator or forced to listen for two hours while on hold with tech support. I'm talking about pre-war Germany when parents were scared to death of what jazz was doing to their teens, just like they were in the 90s about Marilyn Manson. When I was in high school in the late 1990s, Manson got every parent's shorts in a bunch. The disturbing makeup, the gender bending, the aggressive lyrics, it was shock rock par excellence and frankly, I loved it. However, in retrospect, it was actually pretty tame compared to some of the stuff that went on in Germany with jazz. Interwar Germany was mad for jazz and mad about jazz. People either loved it or hated it. Now, why would you hate it? Well, it wasn't the spooky satanic scare of Marilyn Manson, but rather something which some considered far worse. Foreign influence, and not just any foreign influence either, it was specifically an African influence. Jazz was seen as black music, and that made some quite nervous indeed. People were getting jumpy, and not just on the dance floor either. See, the dancing blah, 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 was bad enough, but worse than that was what it led to in the bedroom. You can imagine what that became in the imagination of radical conservatives like the early Nazis. Now what happened when this African-American rooted music hit the hate machine? Well, that's what we're talking about today on the History of Sex Short Shorts. <laughs> History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our new Patreon patron, Veronica C.R. Washington Ramos, for making this episode possible. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a great podcast called History Impossible. It covers historical events and people that you wouldn't believe. For example, right now, I'm listening to a massive episode about Nazi werewolves. That's right, Nazi werewolves. Don't believe it, right? Well, it's all about how the Nazis used the werewolf mythos to inspire guerrilla resistance fighters after the war. I know, interesting. Never hear about that part, do you? Alexander von Sternberg goes in-depth, covering in great detail these topics that you would not believe. Check it out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. All right, let's get started. Time for today's Short Shorts. Short 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 After the end of World War I, Germany had foreign influences creeping in. Well, not so much creeping in as flooding in. This was the Roaring Twenties, after all. Jazz was all the rage, and it swept the Western world. Now, cities in Germany actually had to enact ordinances banning dance to quote-unquote protect youth, supposedly from dancing themselves to death. 
I am not kidding. That is literally what some of them worried about. Here is a quote from the time, courtesy of historian Irene Gunther, quoting a contemporary author from the 1920s in Germany. This new dancing makes women's systems vulnerable. The hard pushes are transferred at the top and harm the delicate abdominal organs that soon become ill and disturbed in their function. In many cases, paralysis occurs. Now and then, death steps in. <laughs> Yikes, talk about panic at the disco. Well, that's obviously an exaggerated fear, but it makes you wonder what really underlied that fear. And it was this, Americanization, or as some right-wing conservatives at the time called it, Negrification. Germans were very much aware of these art forms' African-American roots, which many found disturbing. Now, the possibility of African influence infiltrating Germany was a question not just of music, but of sex. After all, Everyone knows how easily jazz turns into the horizontal mambo, right? No? Well, they thought so. Or at least some of them did, anyway. And this mindset went far beyond fringe radicals like the early Nazis. Fear of African genetic influence polluting, quote-unquote, the Aryan bloodline was actually widespread in Germany, which can be seen in the popular reaction to the French occupation of the Rhineland which is an area between France and Germany. It belongs to Germany, but it was occupied by France after World War I. But here's the thing, though. The French didn't use just any troops to do the occupying. They included African troops from French colonies in Africa, places like Senegal, Mauritania, Morocco, Tunisia. Those were African troops, and German imaginations recoiled at the thought of them with nothing better to do than loaf around and seduce innocent white German girls. So went their thinking. This was called the Black Horror in the English language press. In German, it was actually called Die Schwarze Schmach, or the Black Shame. This was not limited to Germany either, by the way. Just as a tangent, as I said, it was called the Black Horror in the English language press, and most of that press was actually put out in America. People there were nearly as incensed by the French using African troops in the Rhineland as the Germans were. And this horror-slash-shame was widespread across the political spectrum, both left and right. Conservatives hated the occupation, imagining thousands upon thousands of white women just flat-out raped, while liberals also hated the occupation and also took a racist direction but with a slightly different spin to it. For example, liberal writer E.D. Morell believed that Africans were closer to nature and therefore unable to control their sexual urges and needed to be protected from modern civilization and so should be left in Africa and not subjected to the temptations of the Rhineland. It was widespread across the political spectrum. In Germany, these were the kinds of ideas flurrying about when it came to Africans. And so you can imagine how, for parents of the time, this African jazz could be more frightening than Marilyn Manson coming to town. The devilishness of someone like Manson can be dismissed as, you know, mere shock tactics playing on superstition. But race, well, that's 
physical. That's flesh and blood, plain as day in skin and hair. After all, that's how they saw it at the time. You know, people of the time took that seriously as a truth of science. I mean, today we know that the genetic variation contributing to what we call race is actually so minuscule compared to all the other human variation that the very concept of race is more of a social construct than an objective scientific category. But at the time, race was accepted as objective scientific fact. So the perceived danger was all the more real for them in the 20s. You know, in the 90s, parents, you know, they might have feared Manson, but they probably weren't really worried about their teenager getting knocked up and popping out a child of the devil. But parents of the 20s were totally worried about an African baby. And they had a name for such mixed-race individuals in interwar Germany. They called them Rheinlande Bastarde, or Rhineland Bastards. And the connotation is just how it sounds. The fear of African sex was real. So when jazz came to town, it was worse than Marilyn Manson. For many, it represented a clear and present danger. But not for all, of course. There was the flip side, too. I mean, just as Manson attracted droves of fans, so did jazz. Actually, jazz was far more effective at attracting fans than Manson ever was. I mean, Manson's followers were mostly limited to angsty, disaffected teams, <clears throat> myself included. But jazz drew fans from all across the social spectrum and all across strata of society. It was popular from the working class all the way up to high society. Youth across the spectrum loved jazz. And some even idolized black performers, like jazz dancer Josephine Baker, for example. She was an instant sellout at clubs in Berlin. And she was so popular, in fact, that believe it or not, there were even white German women darkening their faces with makeup to look black. Now, I know we might cringe at that today, calling it blackface, which it was, but it had a different meaning at the time. See, Germans didn't have the same complicated history of racist blackface entertainment that America did. On the contrary, for them, darkening their skin to look black was probably more like, you know, putting on spooky makeup to look like, say, Marilyn Manson. Except their idol wasn't Manson, but Josephine Baker. And in one instance, in 1926, Josephine Baker was even invited to judge who among the contestants was the most beautiful, quote-unquote, false Negro? That was the term they used. This was a blackface contest, and she was called to declare the winner. <laughs> I mean, now I can only speculate on the awkwardness that Baker must have felt in that situation. It would have felt weird. I mean, such blackface adoration, well, it is racism, right? But racism of a different kind... And given the alternatives, the other kinds of racism all too prevalent at the time, well, you take what you can get, right? For better or for worse, many young Germans idolized Josephine Baker and went mad for jazz. And this did, in fact, lead to the bedroom. This was an era of new ideas and new explorations, and jazz brought that openness to experimentation to the surface. Just as jazz musicians improvised new rhythms, so people improvised new sexual lifestyles. 
the Flapper Girl, was improvising a whole new way to perform gender, which, as we heard last time, many called masculine, but which she knew, and which we know now, was rather a new way to be feminine. And along with that came new ways to be sexual. And it wasn't just all straight stuff, either. The 20s and 30s saw something called the pansy craze, where there was a surge in the popularity of drag balls, and these shows were attended by queer and straight folk alike, with newspaper articles commonly naming among the spectators many well-known people of the day. They were quite popular and not hush-hush. In addition to this, there were also high-profile jazz age entertainers who were more or less openly bisexual. Josephine Baker was one of them. German cabaret star Marlena Dietrich was another. Henrietta Bingham, Tallulah Bankhead, the list goes on. Now, these were pop stars, so maybe you expect a little more exotic lifestyles, right? And how much of this reflected the practices of the everyday person is anyone's guess. But I would have a hard time believing that there wasn't at least some of this experimentation going on with the regular folk like you and me, with the regular daughters of parents who were terrified by this stuff. But I can tell you that something that definitely was going on with common folk and did terrify parents was something called petting parties. Now, these parties, which were also called snuggle pupping, <laughs> uh -huh, proliferated in the 1920s, not just among flapper types, but among many different kinds of young people. And in these parties, girls might kiss, neck, or even engage in fondling with one or more guys Yet they would stop short of actual penetrative sex, and the group setting actually helped to keep it from turning into a full-on sex orgy. And these petting parties, with this limitation built in, was actually used by young people as a safeguard against pregnancy or disease while still allowing them to explore their sexualities. And now think about that for a second, the fact that one could stop short of penetrative sex. You know, public or not, once you get that train to rolling, it's generally hard to stop it. And I'm sure that it wasn't always successful, but to the extent that it was, well, it speaks to a new sexual ethos in the air. And this ethos respected women's independence and right to choose, their right to say no. And the men involved in these petting parties clearly must have bought into this new ethos to some extent. I mean, to the extent that they chose to hang out with these quote-unquote masculine women, and to the extent that they didn't mind their short boyish hair, they didn't mind them smoking like men, and they didn't mind them saying no just when every instinct in their body wanted them to say yes, but they said no? Okay. That's respect. That's a sexual ethos. That's what was in the air among these jazz-inspired young people. Young girls were experimenting with a new way to be feminine. Now, why did the young boys go along with this? Why did men go in for this? Well, I have to imagine that it was exciting and new for them, too. I mean, to think of yourself as a man of a new age who is okay with a new woman, who prides himself on being okay with a new woman, who gets a rebellious thrill out of saying yes to the future and new gender boundaries. Well, that would be an exciting thing indeed for anyone, including men. And let me tell you, there's a lot here that I personally identify with today as a man. 
In the 1920s, men too were evolving their concepts of gender. It was the spirit of an age, and this evolution dixied forward to the syncopated beats of jazz. Men, women, gay, straight, and every other category of the time were coming out of the woodwork in a new spirit of exploration. And at the center of it was jazz. Now, can we really attribute all of this to jazz? Can we blame jazz for this or give credit to jazz for this, as it were? Well, of course not. And of course, yes. See, music is always bound up with a whole complicated mess of cultural developments, right? No one of which is to blame, but all of which contribute to a new way of being. It's just like Manson's music in the 90s or any other musical scandal that you can think of, Elvis Presley, whatever example you want. People will always point to music and say that it's to blame. And that's completely stupid, but also not entirely wrong. Of course it's to blame. It's one part of a larger cultural zeitgeist, you know, spirit of the times, that pushes forward change. But that also lets people find scapegoats. Marilyn Manson is quoted as saying, the Columbine shootings ruined his career. Apparently the shooters at Columbine listened to a lot of Manson, and so people were holding him responsible, making him the scapegoat. So did Manson actually cause the shootings? No, of course not. That's silly. Surely music has an influence, but an accusation like that is, that's just mere scapegoating. An attempt by accusers to shift responsibility away from themselves. And that is also what happened in Germany with jazz. Conservatives, like the early Nazis, scapegoated jazz for ruining their country. It brought Americanization, it brought African-Americanization, and it brought loose morals and gender inversion. So they said, well, kind of it did, but not just jazz. And in Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler wrapped this into his larger scapegoat strategy by in turn blaming jazz on, you guessed it, the Jews. See, here's the thing about jazz for the Nazis. The sexuality of jazz did not work at all for them. I mean, here you have lots of young women really exploring their sexuality, and you would think that for a people like the Nazis who wanted to get the population up, that this would be great. But these young jazz aficionados were specifically aiming not to get pregnant because that would upset their new independent lifestyle. They wanted to be in control of their lives and in control of their bodies. And for the Nazis, that will not do. So the Nazis tried everything in their power to stamp out jazz because they understood that even if they won the next war on the battlefield, they might lose it in the clubs. The culture war was very real for them, and consequently, they enacted all kinds of policies to crack down on jazz. Many cities, for example, banned dancing, which did not work at all, and it basically just forced jazz underground, resulting in most bands being quickly lifted out of sheer frustration, because it just didn't work. Now eventually, and this is my favorite part, the Nazis ended up trying a more nuanced strategy by creating a jazz band of their own, a swing band called Charlie and His Orchestra, playing songs the lyrics of which were twisted to fit Nazi ideology. <laughs> Here is the latest song of the British Airmen. 
Let's go bombing. Oh, let's go bombing. Just like good old British airmen do. Let us bomb the Frenchmen who were once our allies. England's fight for liberty, we make them realize. From the skies, let's go shelling where they're dwelling. Shelling Nanette, Fifi, and Lulu. Let us go to it. Let's do it. Let's sink their food ships too. Let's go bombing. It's becoming quite the thing to do. Now, Charlie and his orchestra was actually intended for play on international radio to worm Nazi ideas into Allied ears rather than to convert local Germans, but it nevertheless represents a shift in Nazi strategy from attacking jazz to appropriating it. And in any case, all of this demonstrates the perceived threat of jazz in the eyes of the Nazi party. In the end, jazz was a thorn in the Third Reich's side, but there was just nothing that they could really do about it and jazz ended up persisting in Germany up through the end of the war, especially in the form of swing, which Hitler hated, and which we are going to hear about more next time when we talk about the swing youth that rebelled against the Nazi regime and fought Hitler youth in the street in a kind of gang warfare. That's coming up next week. You look forward to that. But jazz was a cultural movement that just could not be repressed. And in the end, the racial tone of jazz was something that even the Nazi regime simply could not contain either. This African-rooted music wormed its way into Germany to the great delight of many, many young people. Well, that's about all I've got for today on that. Oh, before we go, though, just a little fun tangent. Remember Josephine Baker, that jazz dancer? Well, during the war, she actually became a spy. That's right, a spy. She was the 007 of the 1940s. And I could just imagine her with her banana skirt tricked out to shoot poison darts as she entrances world leaders with her dance and replaces the Nazi salute with jazz hands, which she actually invented, by the way. It's a fascinating story, but many other podcasts have actually done a great job of covering her life, so I'm going to leave it there. Meanwhile, like I said, next week, we'll talk about Hitler Youth versus Swing Kids. All right, I hope you learned something today. I certainly did. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, you can support the show by subscribing, rating, and reviewing. You can also support us on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a Dixie dancing jazz girl toe-tapping with a Tunisian boy, flicking the middle finger to racism, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg, that's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, we'll see you next time, folks. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex.
Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.